Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Cubitt. I want to talk to you still out of Luke chapter 7, 39 through 47, which I'll get to in just a moment. But I want to talk to you about being properly broken. Because it's one thing to be blessed in your brokenness, but you have to be properly broken. If you look at a horse, there are horses for every kind of work. There's a war horse who is broken specifically for combat. He runs towards the sound of battle. The clanging of swords and shields doesn't bother him. Explosions going off around him don't phase him. He has one objective. He has been broken to get his rider to the front line. And let me tell you, until he's broken for that, he's useless for that. But not all of us are war horses. Some of us are plow horses. Some of us have been broken for a different purpose because we all have a different purpose. The plow horse is broken to carry the harness, not wear the saddle, to be sensitive to the touch of the master, to bear the load day in and day out, wake up early, go to bed late, work, 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 and be diligent in that work. But that's Not all of us are plow horses, but that's okay too. The idea is, though, whether we wear a saddle or a harness, we recognize that we have a purpose and allow ourselves to be properly broken for that purpose. The Bible tells us that we all have a different purpose. Let me, listen, let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. That means your purpose. Consider your purpose. You, individually. I'm not talking to the congregation right now. I'm looking at every face in, in this room. Consider your individual purpose. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and despise God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Why do I tell you this? One, to tell you everybody has a purpose. And every one of us are broken for our individual purpose based on what we are before we're broken and what God intends for us to do after we're broken. It says here, some are foolish, but that doesn't mean all are foolish. The foolish need to be broken differently than the wise. Some are weak, but not everyone's weak. But I tell you, the weak need to be broken differently than the strong. Some are ignoble and base, but not everybody lacks nobility. But they need to be broken differently than those that do. All of us. 
I want to tell you this is so important in the church. It's okay to be broken. God wants us to be broken. God breaks us. But he doesn't want us to be broken for the sake of brokenness. He wants us to be broken for the sake of usefulness. Do you hear what I'm saying? God created us all for a purpose. The idea that God created Jim Cuber, which doesn't mean a lot to all of y'all, but those of you guys that knew me 20 years ago, I was all those dumb things, those ignoble things, the unwise, the weak. I'm still kind of all those things. But I'm less those things than I am. I was then. Because I've allowed God, however he determined to do so, to break me and make me useful. People say, man, I wish I could do such and such, like so-and-so does. Stop that. God broke you for your purpose. And I wish I could pray like Leonard. Stop that. Pray in sincerity, but pray the way God broke you. I wish I could teach like Pastor Rick. Stop that. I wish I had the sensitivity of Trent Patterson. Stop that. God broke you for a different purpose. I wish I had the musical ability. Steve Seckler, stop that. Because God broke you for a different purpose. Recognize who you are and make yourself useful according to his purpose in your life. Amen? you're going to find a couple of things. One, you're going to be used. And two, you're going to find your value in your brokenness. But, in all of that, we have to be properly broken. Because let me tell you, if I break a war horse, a, a horse I intend to take to battle, like I would break a plow horse, that plow horse is not going to do me any good. It's probably going to die of a heart attack long before I get to the battle line. But if I break a plow horse like a war horse, he's never going to pull a plow. So we need to be broken purposefully for the purpose God created us for, which means to be properly broken. So today I want to talk to you about that. What it is to be properly broken. And I, I'm going to ask that you, I'm going to, I'm going to preach this lesson, teach this lesson, however you want to say it, by simply asking three questions. And I want you, please, don't listen to what I say and then go away like you didn't hear. Write the questions down, filter your life through them, and find out whether or not you're useful for your purpose. Verses. 40, or correction, 39 through 47 of chapter 7 of Luke says this. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, saw him engaging with this woman that we talked about a moment ago, he said to himself, as the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, who is the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. 
Isn't it interesting that he didn't actually verbalize it, but Jesus answered him anyway? She said, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So how do I know if I'm properly broken? I'm going to ask three questions out of this text. First question. Am I humble? Let me tell you. You can't be broken if you're not humble enough to recognize that you're already broken. There's three statements that this Pharisee says that just exude, that bubble over with arrogance. In verse 39, he says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, which means he was mumbling to himself. Y'all ever have... I liken this kind of stuff to my kids. They, you tell them something, they walk out of the room, dang old crazy old talking all that craziness. They're saying to their self, they're showing their arrogance. Verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. The Christ has something to say to you. And this guy says, Say it, teacher. Let me tell you, I'm not convinced even just for a second that he thought that Jesus could teach him anything. I told you the last time we were together the two reasons why this Pharisee would have invited Jesus into his house, more than likely. One was because it was tradition to invite rabbis into your house when they were traveling through your town. And the more important the rabbi, the more acknowledged and recognized the rabbi was, the more clout he gave you. So he was either seeking clout or he was trying to do like every other Pharisee tried to do to Jesus, trap him. Both of these things tell me that he didn't believe the Christ could teach him anything. And he has the arrogance to his face to say, say it, teacher, knowing that he intended to learn nothing. And then the third statement, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. I suppose... I could picture my girls when they were little. I asked them a question. If you begin any answer to an authority figure with, I suppose that's right, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't think that's right at all. But you're the authority figure here, so I'm not going to embarrass you. Not only that, but there's a greater problem here. He's presupposing on Jesus he had an idea 
about who he thought Jesus was in the first place. He had an idea about the teaching of the word in the first place. How often do we do that? We come into church, pastor says, hey, turn to Luke 7. We're going to talk about the lady that washed Jesus' feet. And you presuppose that you've already heard this text. Well, I already know what, what, what he's going to teach out there. I already know that you've got to do this, this, and this. And this is what happened. I presuppose an understanding because this is what my old pastor told me. Or this is what I was taught by tradition. And I'm not here to dog your old pastor. I don't know your old pastor. But I'll tell you, don't listen to what I tell you until you check it by the word. Doesn't matter what any pastor tells you, you should never presuppose that they're telling you the truth. Because only the word, which is Christ Jesus, has the ability to tell you the truth and have weight in that truth. And so he was showing his lack of humility by making these statements. By saying, he said to himself, which means he muttered under his breath. He called him teacher, knowing or believe it. He couldn't teach him anything. And then I suppose, presupposing that he already knew the answer. This is not how we receive from God. This is not how we are properly broken. The question I have to ask you today is, what does your humility look like? Are you humble? Do you exude self-confidence? Or do you think of yourself rightly? Humility doesn't mean I think poorly of myself. I, I, I hear people self-abased more often than I'd like, thinking that it makes them sound humble. I'll tell you one of the things I used to do when, I first, when we first started here. People would come up and be all, or when I was doing men's ministry stuff at our other church, they'd come up and say, Pastor Jim, that was a good teaching. And that would freak me out. Because I understood that the preaching didn't come from, it came from me, but came out of the Word of God. And so I, didn't, I wasn't sure how to respond to that. So I'd, I'd always respond wrongly. I'd say, well, God's good, but it wasn't me. Well, the person that just complimented you all, I, I literally just heard you, it was you. Humility isn't about abasement, self-abasement. It's about acknowledging who you are. The answer that should be given in those instances is thank you. I'm humbled by your compliment. And God is so good to reveal himself in his word to us. This is what it is to think rightfully of ourselves. Not to beat ourselves up, but not to think too highly of ourselves either. This is what the word says, Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, which means soberly and sensibly, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Pharisee didn't do that. He thought more of himself than he ought. And improving or in thinking more of himself than he ought, really only proved one thing that he was falling under judgment that he was a liar that he lacked wisdom that he lacked holiness in Luke there's a 
chapter, I can't name the chapter right off the top of my head. One of you guys probably help me out. The seven woe statements. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. 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 And then after each one of those is something to do with their lack of humility. They think they're better than they are. They interpret the word wrongly because they think they know better than the word. They mislead people because they think that they should be followed instead of, instead of Christ Jesus or the word, as it were, Yahweh. But you know what woe to you literally means? Judgment to you. Judgment to you if you're not walking in humility. And that, does that freak you out? It should freak us out. It should cause us to step back and repent where we're arrogant. Repent where we've fallen short. Acknowledge that we have no ability to do this thing on our own. We have to come to a place where we acknowledge God favors the humble. Did you hear that? God favors the humble. Mm. Let me read this text to you. This one used to mess me up. James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Everybody say a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is why this used to mess me up. Because it says, a greater grace. Like, I'm never sure what to do with that. Because if there's a greater grace, then there has to be a lesser grace. Did, it, so I was trying to define, what is this lesser grace? Let me tell you what this lesser grace is. I'm going to blow your mind with this. You ready for this? It blew my mind. Of course, my mind got a bunch of holes in it. But this blew my mind, that God gives grace to the saved and the unsaved. couple of y'all religious folks are all, boy, that ain't true. God only gives grace to those that accept it. You know what grace means? Grace means unmerited favor. Anything that God gives you that you don't deserve. You know what you don't deserve? You don't deserve the very life that you live. You don't deserve the strength in your body. You don't deserve the patience of God that is diligently waiting for you to accept his son, Jesus. That's the lesser grace. That God loves humanity so much that he extends favor even to the unsaved. But the greater grace is available to the humble. Those that acknowledge that life is more about breathing and more about glorifying Christ. This is who has the greater grace available to them. That's the reason why it continues. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What kind of grace? Greater grace. A saving grace. That saving grace always begins in humility. One of my favorite texts, because it, it says it so simply in regard to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse three, four, and five. We know them as the Beatitudes. They continue for a few verses after that. 
But verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you know what poor in spirit means? Blessed are those that recognize their own depravity. Blessed are those that recognize that you're a sinner deserving of hell, both by birth and by action. That if it weren't for Christ Jesus, you'd die and go straight to hell. But Jesus Christ himself saved you. That you aren't worthy to be in the presence of the holy. This is the truth of the word of God, according to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you know what? Those that recognize their depravity, those poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder why. Because verse three say, or 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In our depravity, we mourn our sin. In acknowledging that we're never going to be good enough, we come to a place of repentance. Isn't that beautiful? Because then it says, For they shall be comforted. Don't mourn, brother and sister, without the expectation of comfort. And then the next verse continues, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You know what gentle means? Meek, humble. This is, this is the way our salvation plays out. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're convicted of our depravity in recognizing our depravity we confess and mourn and weep over our sin and in confessing and mourning and weeping over our sin we can it's only possible as we are humble you know you can't go to God with a closed hand and expect to receive anything the only thing that a closed hand proves is that you're already holding everything you want But if we'll open that hand up, God wants to pour his love out on us. Not because we deserve it, because it's his very nature to do so. But we have to be properly broken. We have to be people of humility in order to receive that. So that's the first question. Are you humble? Books and books and encyclopedias could be written on humility but the simple question is do you have a poor spirit do you recognize your depravity do you mourn the sin that's in your life and do you with an open hand before God believe that when you ask him he'll forgive you of that sin not only forgive you of that sin but make you righteous in his own eyes not because of anything that you did but because of what Christ Jesus did that he came here, humbled himself. It says, have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2. And it says a bunch of cool stuff about Jesus. It says, who even humbled himself upon the, to a point of death, even death upon a cross, which means to say, even the worst kind of death for your sake. The glorious, magnificent, beautiful, all-consuming, all-powerful, everything made by, through, and for him died so that you might have an opportunity to know who he is. And we come to that God with a closed hand. Does it make any sense? 
want you to ask yourself this week, am I humble? The second question is really a derivative of that question because I've never met anybody that was humble and received but wasn't also grateful. Are you grateful? In this text that I read you, it says this, that Jesus answered him, verse 40, that Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. So he begins to tell this story of two debtors. He said, a money lender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. For which, so which of them loved him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Let me break this down for you in today's, today's real money. The average income in the state of Tennessee is $16 an hour. And if you make more than that, you should be blessed. And you should feel blessed. And you should act blessed. And if you make less than that, you should feel blessed. You, you should feel blessed and act blessed because you are blessed. But the, in real money, $16 an hour, a denarii, the amount of denarii owed here, the 500 denarii would equate to $62,000. And the other guy, $6,400. Let me ask you a question. If a guy come and told you you've owned this car for three or four years, you got maybe one year left to pay on it. And so your car's here and your house is here. You got 15 more years, man. And a guy tells you, he goes, you know what? I'm going to forgive your mortgage debt instead of your car debt. How much more grateful are you going to be that your mortgage was paid than your car was paid? We should be grateful for both. But let me tell you, if somebody says, I'm going to pay off your mortgage, I'll be all, I, just so you all know, if you all want to help your brother out, I'm going to be very grateful. But my point is, Jesus Christ paid a debt we couldn't pay. And it was the greater debt. Did you hear me? It's the debt we couldn't pay. It's the debt that we owe. The Bible tells us that death is the penalty for sin. That we were eternally separated from God. No one knew even to look for Him. None of us were righteous. No, not even one, according to the Word of God. But Christ Jesus paid our debt became sin, shed his own blood on a cross that, and this messes me up, that in all honesty probably didn't only belong to him. When we see a cross, there's a reason why we don't have a cross here. Once you take a picture and a mental image, what we have here is the absence of a cross because we live behind it, that's beyond it. So you know, that's why we don't have an actual physical cross here. The second reason is because I can't imagine 
putting a shiny cross, the article upon which Christ himself died in a church. I don't think we can make it grotesque enough to give it its full weight. When we see even on TV, we see Jesus pick up this cross, it's all pristine. Let me tell you, Israel, lumber's not cheap. They had to ship it in. So there's a chance there's several people died on that cross before Jesus did. So he not only picked up the cross, he picked up the stench of death, the stickiness of blood, the ruggedness of that cross tearing into his shoulder. Why did he do it? Because there was a debt that needed to be paid that we couldn't pay, that only his blood and his sacrifice could pay for us. And for that, we should be grateful. But the Bible tells us not to be just grateful in the good things because that's how we do, right? We're grateful for the good things that we have, the fact that our mortgage was paid off. But 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. You know, well, surely you don't mean that. Yes, I mean that. You know why? Because there's a Romans 8.28 promise for you. 8.28 says this. And we know that God causes, which means he's the provocateur. He provokes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How many things? Some things, the good things, the perfect things, the things only we specifically pray for. No, it says all things. Be grateful in all things. Because there's a promise in that. I'll tell you a story about Angela and I about 10 years ago. We had a little girl in our Sunday school class who, I can't remember if it was her sister or her cousin or something, had a baby. This baby was born super premature. So premature, in fact, that the child was born without skin. So that every nerve in the child's body was exposed to the, to the air. Which means that the very air burnt and caused this baby, this brand new baby, extreme pain. We prayed. God, heal this baby. God, we believe your word is true. We declare in the name of Jesus. You know what happened at the end of four days? That baby passed away. And I'll be honest with you, I was messed up for a while. Because all week we prayed. Why wasn't this baby healed? What happened? Romans 8, 28 happened. That in all things, God works for good those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We realized shortly after that in that four days, people from our Sunday school class would go to the hospital, pray with that family, love that family, bring food to that family. 
And in four days' time, that whole family unsaved came to recognize the love of Jesus through Christ-like people. That whole family from mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles came to know the Lord in four days. That child suffered for four days, and I, I hate that. But in light of eternity, God works all things for his purposes. Amen? In all things, are you grateful? And then finally, the, the last question I will ask you today is how do I love? How do I love? 44 through 47, read like this. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Can I tell you, love little is a perception, not a truth, because if Jesus Christ died for you, I don't care how many sins you've committed, whether it's a great number or a small number, you still deserve death. How do you return that love? Isn't it amazing what she was willing to do to show her love? You know, we can we can declare our love. We say, man, I love you. I love you, man. But your declaration will always fade in the light of your demonstration. That's why I love Scripture so much. It's for God demonstrated His own love that while we were still sinners, He sent Jesus to die for us. He did what? He didn't sit in heaven and go, man, I sure love them. I wish they'd figure it out. What did He do? He demonstrated His love and gave His own life so that we could be with him. What are you doing to demonstrate love? She washed his feet with her tears, kissed his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. That's, that's sensational today. But a woman's hair back then was truly her, her glory, her beauty. Everything resided in her hair. She gave up her glory to glorify Christ. Are you willing to love like that? Are you willing to give up the weight of who you think you are for the weight of who Christ Jesus actually is? You know what that means? That means you're going to have to look at people that don't look like you. You're going to have to see them, recognize their need. But I look down at them Recognize that you had that same need and be gracious enough to tell them the truth. That's what love is. 
love walks it out. Love doesn't talk it out. If you're not willing to put boot leather to the love that you say you have, I would say you don't have love at all. I asked the question some time ago, how badly do you have to hate someone to not tell them about Jesus? You're like, you know what, I just don't want to make any ripples. I don't want to make my friends mad. How badly do you hate them that you're willing to let them suffer an eternal separation from God instead of loving them enough to potentially offend them but tell them the truth? So there's the questions. And I want you to give these questions full weight as you study over them this week. These questions, am I humble? In my humility for what I've been given, am I grateful for the things I understand and the things I don't understand? Does my gratefulness cause me to do as this woman did? Which is to act in love not talk about love I didn't ask the question how do I feel love because let me tell you if you base what you're doing for other people on how you feel then just as soon as you feel like you don't want to do that anymore you're going to stop base what you do for people on what was done for you which is to sacrifice yourself at whatever cost so that they might know too question is are you willing to be saddled are you willing to be harnessed are you willing to be broken not for your own purpose but for his that's my prayer today that you be willing to be broken properly amen